Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Stiles, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the host, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, January 9th, 2022. And a proper Happy New Year a to proper, everybody. Yeah, we're back. Thanks for all the sweet tweets and emails and messages after we had our non-episode episode last week. Yes, when we had COVID. <laughs> yeah. So we, we Brendan and I at least, kind of still have some lingering cold symptoms, but that's pretty much it. Everyone in our house... I mean, us two plus the baby um, are pretty much through it. So if you are in it right now with, you know, a positive diagnosis in your household, wishing you a speedy recovery, a mild illness, hopefully it goes through pretty quick. We were lucky that we had pretty mild symptoms and... Yeah, exactly. Like we're, we're not <laughs> glad to be on the other side of it. Yeah, we're not fully recovered. You know, we're not completely back to normal. But I am surprised how quickly I've gone back to like feeling normal versus like a normal cold. Yeah, it does seem like the symptoms dropped off pretty quickly, but not totally. Yes, that's, what, that's it's kind of like experience. An, an annoying cold, like a cold that just won't go away. You know, you have like one or two symptoms, and you're just like, I'm over it. Yeah, that's kind of how it feels right now. But hoping and, uh, you know, thinking of all those out there who are getting those diagnoses or just got those diagnoses. Or trying to find a test, for God's sake, or whatever or it is. Or some who are in hospitals right now, yeah. you know, fighting it, or whose family members are. You know, we got to think of, of, of those folks because the number of hospitalizations are very high and the diagnoses are as high as they've ever been. Absolutely. But we are back to talking about the Sunday show. So that's it. We're not going to talk about COVID Ever after again. this, right? Oh, no, wait. <laughs> We're talking a lot about it on the show because, of course, that's what's happening. That's what's happening in the world. Brendan, what shows did you look at? I took a look at Meet the Press, which I realized I hadn't looked at for several weeks. Actually, like all, the whole month of December, I didn't look at Meet the Press. So there's no I news in December. It's was fine. looking forward to looking at Meet the Press and at Fox News Sunday, a Chris Wallace-less show. I wonder when they're going to announce the permanent host. By the end of this month, is my guess. I think they might take longer, but we'll see. I looked at Face the Nation. I looked at This Week, which was hosted by George Stephanopoulos. And I looked at State of the Union, which was hosted by Jake Tapper. Yeah, I guess I should say the Chris Wallace lists. It's hard to say. Fox News Sunday was hosted by Brett Baer. Interesting. All right, Naomi, let's get into quality questionable. What was your, did you have any quality or questionable moments this week? Yeah, I have a quality moment. It's just like a good old fashioned, awesome shade, you know, a sassy response by a politician or, you know, by a guest. So I wanted to just highlight this response from Face the Nation where Brad Raffsenberger, he is the Secretary of State in the state of Georgia. He was the Secretary of State that resisted Trump's demands to find these extra votes so he could win the state of Georgia. Which he did not do. Trump did not win. He did not do that. He, Raffensperger, pretty much said, like, nah, man, that's literally the opposite of my job. And it's important to point out that Raffensperger is a Republican. He's a Republican, right. And he's being primaried, and Trump is you know, all for his primary challenge. And this is what he had to say about his primary challenge, which just just so good and sassy. Just to remind our audience, you became uh, known nationally in the wake of that election because you refused to succumb to pressure from President Trump when he specifically uh, asked you to, quote, find 11,780 votes. President Biden, of course, won that state by 11,779 votes. Now you're up for re-election, and you are being primaried by a Republican congressman who objected to even certifying the president's victory. I wonder, uh, do you f- 
fear that in the future, Republican officials in your state may try to change the outcome of an upcoming election for purely political purposes? Well, the person I'm running against, Congressman Heiss, he's been in Congress for several years. He's never done a single piece of election reform legislation. Then he certified his own race with those same machines, those same ballots. And yet for President Trump, he said you couldn't trust that. That's a double-minded person. And as a pastor, he should know better. So I'm going to run on integrity, and I'm going to run on the truth. I don't know what he's going to run on. Oh. I love just a good old-fashioned political shade. He's pretty much saying this guy's been in Congress, never has cared about election integrity, hasn't done anything for it. It worked for him. It worked for him, but somehow for Trump it didn't. Okay, bro. I like that. He's a a double-minded person. It's almost too kind. It's like, (laughs) I don't know. Do you want to say that the person has two minds? How about maybe... Zero minds. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So that was mine. Just, you know, pretty simple, pretty basic political insulting that I like. (laughs) That was quality. Yeah, that was, yeah, a quality, quality insult, quality shade. Brendan, what did you have? A quality or questionable? I had a quality question that I wanted to highlight from... Chuck Todd, he was speaking to Representative Adam Kinzinger, Republican, another Republican here, Republican representative from the state of Illinois. Famously, he is one of only two Republicans on the January 6th committee investigating the attack on the Capitol and the events leading up to it. And, of course, the January 6th committee has released a lot of information so far, particularly in the last few weeks, including text messages, documents, other details about what was being sent to and about President Trump from those around him, including family members. But of course, they haven't released like a big report yet. They're still doing their investigation, this committee, and they're keeping some things close to the vest, understandably, because they're not they're not ready. They're not done. But Chuck Todd, he wanted to peek behind the curtain. He wanted some nugget, some insight, some hint as to what the committee was still working on. And I thought he had an excellent way of asking that and getting something interesting out of Representative Kinzinger. All right, but let me try to give me one thing you don't have yet that you really think you need, you know, a witness or uh, that you really or you need to understand that would make this a stronger report. You know, I think the one thing that if I could wave a magic wand and have more information on, it would certainly be what did the president know about January 6th leading up to January 6th. And I think what's important is it's the difference between was the president absolutely incompetent or a coward on the 6th when he didn't do anything Mm -hmm. or did he know what was coming? And I think that's the difference between incompetence with your oath and possibly criminal. That's where I want to get more information. We do have, obviously, some some things leading up to right. that, but the more information we can get, obviously, the better. So just a great question from Chuck Todd. Like, what, what do you want? What information would you really like to have? So excellent work by Chuck Todd there. And I would just say, related to Adam Kinzinger's answer here, certainly that would be interesting to know. Reminds me of some of the early questions around what Trump knew about Russia's interest in influencing the outcome of the 2016 election. How much did Trump know about Russia's interest? But I would posit for Representative Kinzinger that there aren't just two options in terms of what Trump was doing on January 6th. Certainly, he could have been criminal in his planning of January 6th. That's one option that Representative Adam Kinzinger lays out. He says possibly criminal. Certainly Trump could have been incompetent in not sending in security forces to quell the uprising at the Capitol building. That's incompetence, which Kinzinger said. But there's also like gleeful interest, like sign me up. I'm all about this when he saw it was happening, you know? And I think that the evidence that we have publicly at least leans toward that. Trump wasn't just incompetent. He wasn't sitting there, you know, oh, I don't know what to do. He was being told what he should be doing, and he was refusing to do it. And he was saying, literally, to... People were pleading with him. They were pleading with him. And he said, well, Kevin McCarthy, maybe these people care about the election more than you do. That is not incompetence. That is, I'm on their side. 
right? And Trump said, we love you to the people who did this. So I, I don't think I would call that incompetence. I, I think incompetence assumes a sense of neutrality. There was no neutrality in Trump's actions, clearly. But that's my take. Naomi, what was the big thematic thing you wanted to talk about today that stood out to you among the three shows you looked at? So I wanted to talk about schools, schools and kids and Omicron. And very interesting. I, I will have a little bit about that as well. Yeah. So this is not a new story. Well, COVID in general is a two year long story. But the point around how this virus is impacting schools, children, their well-being, it, it's not new. But with this recent surge, given that it is infecting children more and that it's so transmissible, and kids have been out for the last few weeks for the holidays and they're starting to come back, there is this renewed sense of frustration and confusion for parents and educators about what they're exactly they're supposed to be doing. How do you stay safe, right? Yeah. So I felt like this was a moment. This was a moment in which you could have dove deep into this topic, framed it in a really interesting way, tried to get different perspectives. I saw zero educators on the show. Same here. No parents, no students, yep. as if students yep. don't have their own experience. So that Where was Martha Raddatz? <laughs> she would have gone and talked to all those people. She talked to vets this week, not to students. So wait, Raddatz was... Hosting? Well, she did a segment on okay, the radicalization okay. of vets. But but anyway, I mean, those voices were all missing. The only people who were talking about schools were public health, you know, figures like the Gottlieb, the Dr. Jaw type figures. Yeah, Gottlieb's a dime a dozen, clearly. The Gottlieb. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then politicians about what they're doing in their respective cities. So clearly some voices missing. That's kind of my first disclaimer. My second is then, like, what is the rigor in which these journalists are examining this topic, even with the hosts that they have, right? The guests, you mean? The ghosts? The guests that they have. <laughs> the ghosts. That like, not the ghosts that they have. The <laughs> guests that they have. Right. So I'm going to be leaning heavily on two interviews with the same guests. So new New York City Mayor Eric Adams was on both State of the Union and Face the Nation. And this topic around schools and kids came up in both of them. So let's start with State of the Union first. As I mentioned, it was hosted by Jake Tapper. And listen to this first example or this first clip in which Tapper introduces the segment around schools and kind of acknowledges that parents are super frustrated, but at least appreciative that Mayor Adams is determined to keep schools open. So you're adamant about keeping New York schools open and many parents are applauding you for that. Health experts say the way to keep schools open safely is with vaccines and masking and ventilation and widespread testing. Right now, New York uses a, a complicated opt-in randomized testing program that only covers a fraction of students in schools. Uh, the teachers unions are proposing, uh, or at least some teachers are calling for weekly testing mandated for all students and staff. That would be the safest. Uh, why not? That's a great question. And, you know, first I want to take my hat off to Michael Mulgrew, the UFT president. Uh, we're seeing what's playing out in other locales. But here in New York, uh, we're doing something that's important. We're communicating. And even in areas that we disagree, we say that's fine. Now let gets, let's get down to the task of keeping our schools open. Science dictates one thing. The safest place for children is in a school building. And what we want to do is not get in the way of preventing children from coming into that building. Some parents have been reluctant of doing the mandatory testing. Uh, we believe the combination we have put together now of making sure we test in the classroom. If it did not spread, keep that classroom open, remove that child out, and also make sure children are in a safe space because all children can't afford or do remote learning because they don't have access to technology. Adams was adamant. I just had to I had to point that out. Yes, Brendan. So a couple of things here. So one, this whole thing about the UFT, the UFT is the teachers union in New York City. I mean, Tapper didn't ask about that. But I guess Adams is trying to kind of acknowledge that he doesn't have the drama that, you know, Mayor Lightfoot has in Chicago, where there's like such drama between the union and Chicago schools. But he's he's pretty much just saying Parents are not thrilled by mandated 
testing, even though he doesn't disagree that weekly testing for everyone would be the safest. Yeah, literally, he talked for a very long time. There is one sentence of all those sentences where he's actually answering the question. Exactly. Which is, some parents have been reluctant of doing the mandatory testing. That's it. That's the answer. Yeah. that That's the answer and all that fluff. Yeah. Which is, like, truly fluff. But to Tapper's credit, he follows up on this. But I guess the question is, wouldn't <clears throat> mandated weekly testing for students, teachers, faculty be the safest way to keep the schools open. Why are you not doing that? Because ideally that would be the safest place, safest way to do it. But you know what would happen? I don't want to lose some of my children. And the way we are doing it now, we are being successful in keeping down the rates low. And if we reach that moment that we have to uh, have that mandatory testing, then we'll evaluate that again with our medical professionals. But I need my children in school and any barrier to do that, I believe, is more harmful than helpful. That was a good answer, I thought. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily acknowledging the safety of teachers or staff, but is putting his focus on if it's a barrier to kids being in school, I don't want to lead with that. Right. Essentially. And I just want to point out, like, this is an important thing for government officials to be able to do, to say, look, there is the ideal, that might be the ideal way, but it's not a practical way. It doesn't make sense in the world that we live in where people are resistant. So we're going to do the best we can. The best we can has been effective. And we're going to stick to that because the alternative, the ideal, would mean there are fewer kids in school and we can't have that. I just wish you would have leaned with that to begin with i mean right maybe i'm like too skeptical for my own good which i don't think that's the case skepticism is wonderful but <laughs> i just acknowledge that acknowledge that as like this is the universe in which we're working in right and this is the best call for that yeah i i think he's doing what a politician does when they get on the stage at their rally and saying first i want to tip my hats off to this person and that person and i want to name drop this person and that person i want to give this person credit and i want to you know what i mean yes that's what he did here it's not relevant to the you know in your in your previous clip it's not relevant to the answer but he felt he needed to do that and he's kind of wasting everyone's time yeah i i wholeheartedly agree also i think in a world of school shootings it's kind of crazy to say the lines the safest place for children is in a school building don't even get me started yeah the other angle around this in terms of the actual real world scenarios that they have to try to teach children in is the actual vaccination rates of kids and tapper brings this point up and actually uses a smidge of data too only 40 percent of new york city residents under the age of 18 have received at least one shot of the vaccines california is going to require all students in public schools to get vaccinated to attend school in the fall. Will New York City do the same? That is something I am speaking with my healthcare professionals to do an evaluation to determine is that if that is what we do. Uh, you know, let's be clear in this country, uh, we do vaccinate for small pops, measles and other things. And so we need to engage in a real conversation of how to educate, use the time before the fall to educate our parents to show the importance of it. And we're going to we're going to sit down and determine if we're going to roll that out as well. So these are really important aspects of this because if we're saying schools are the safest place for children then that only happens when (laughs) best practices are implemented and best practices include vaccines include boosters and includes testing all of which are not high priorities for mayor adams so you know I i think tapper doesn't call him out on it explicitly He brings up the question, but he's not underscoring like, okay, but those are the best practices and you're just not making it a priority. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to compare this to the interview on Face the Nation, which Margaret Brennan did. And Margaret Brennan was much more explicit and made those connections much more clear in the interview with New York City Mayor Eric Adams. And I think this is also important because Eric Adams literally just became mayor. Like you are setting the standard of what your interviews are going to be with him, what your relationship is going to be with him as a journalist. And he's probably going to come back on the show more. Right. So I think it's really important for journalists to kind of frame 
what those expectations and what kind of interviews you do. And that's exactly what Margaret Brennan did. In this first clip, she acknowledges all the work that New York City schools are doing and asks if he's confident that transmission is going to stay low. You have the largest school district uh, in the country, in your city, of course, and you have been very clear you are keeping schools open. To do that, you've given out N95 masks, required staff be vaccinated. Everyone's got to be masked. You've got air purifiers, you've routine screening, but you're not requiring a negative test before students return to the classroom. That's something they're doing here in the District of Columbia. Um, are you confident you can keep the level of transmission low? Uh, you know, and it's so important that you laid out uh, the things that we put in place because COVID is a formidable and moving target. And we have to pivot and shift based on that. And our policies have been rooted in, I need my children in school. And if my medical professionals tell me, Eric, we have to do a mandated vaccine, we're going to do that. But right now, we have brought over 1.5 million tests in our schools, as you indicated, in 95 masks, as well as other resources and tools. And we have been doing an amazing job because of one thing, coordination and communication with our UFT and other agencies involved. And I believe we're doing the right thing for our children, having them in the safest place, and that is in the school building. In her next immediate follow-up, Margaret Brennan brings up something that was completely missing in the State of the Union, and that's the fact that transmission is happening and staff are calling out. You're talking about the union there, but um, you've kept schools open, but the plain fact of the matter is people are still going to get sick, and I know you have had some staff shortages as a result of that. Attendance in school this past week was about 70%, so about 300,000 out of a million students um, missed class. Are you going to have to elongate the school year to make up for all this? Uh, you know, I'm so glad you said that because I think many people are missing. There was an amazing article in the New York Times that stated this is the first time we spent more time and energy around protecting adults than the future of our children. I'm troubled uh, that we almost had a two-year loss for our children. They're behind in math, behind in English. Uh, we're going to sit down with my new chancellor and stated how do we start doing the catch-up because remote options are not really uh, being used and can't be used correctly for those children who don't have access to high-speed broadband, need the meals that they need. Uh, I know we have to look at a different way of living with COVID each time yeah. a new variant comes out. Now, that's really compelling data that Margaret Brennan uses here. So stark. 300,000. 30% of the student body is out. Yeah. That's, that's not even including teachers. And I mean, I just really want to applaud the Face the Nation team and Margaret Brennan because the way she uses that stat is not like a data-dense question, right? But it frames our understanding of like, oh, wow, there's a lot of kids already out and already sick. And the day-to-day -day right now, post-holidays, is, is kind of nuts. By using a simple stat like that, it shows to the guest and also the audience, like the person you're talking to did their homework. Yeah, and Eric Adams acknowledges that, but he doesn't have an answer yet, right? Whether they're going to elongate the school year, because that's the question. She has all that data, and then her question is, are you going to elongate the school year to make up for this? And he says, we don't have an answer yet. It's also interesting that he talks about remote learning isn't really an option because of the lack of access to broadband without mentioning that even among those who have access, it's not ideal and it hasn't worked very well. Right. And that there's serious drawbacks to it. Yeah. And then I just wanted to kind of include this bit longer of an exchange between Margaret Brennan and Eric Adams, where she really kind of comes for him, where she says, listen, like Infection is going up with children. Vaccinations are low. And depending on how young they are, they might not be able to be vaccinated at all. I think in this kind of elongated, speaking of elongated, in this elongated exchange, you'll see just how shallow Eric Adams's responses are. We may have to live with it, but for the infection rate, when I look at the New York State Department of Health report, which I just did, it said potential increased severity of the Omicron variant may also play a role in increased rate of hospitalizations for children under age 11. 
What makes you confident that Omicron isn't causing bad outcomes in kids when the state makes this point? Well, let's look at something else the state and city is, is, is stating. A child is four times more likely to be hospitalized if they're not vaccinated. So I am saying to my parents and the people of New York, get vac vaccinated and get booster shots. We don't have to feel helpless like the beginning of this virus in 2020. Science and global communities came together. We now have the tools that we need. So let's empower ourselves with the vaccination and booster shots. Right. If we do that, we will bring down those hospital rates. And that is what I'm encouraging parents to do. But some parents are just not vaccinating. They're five to 11 year olds, that, that younger demographic. But what about kids uh, who are four and under? Um, they don't have an option to take a vaccine. And that is where you're seeing the fastest growing infection rate, according to the New York State Department of Health. Are you going to keep daycare facilities open? Or are you going to keep preschools open when those kids can't be vaccinated? Yes, we are. Uh, we're going to continue to do what we're doing, coordinating with our healthcare professionals. Uh, when you start to disrupt the stability of childcare, of daycare and education, it has a rippling impact throughout our ent entire city. Uh, parents uh, not a lot, can't keep their children home. Uh, they have to work. The economy is also part of this crisis that we're facing. And with the proper balance of creating a safe environment inside our daycares, our, our, our schools and other locations, our parents can go and do the jobs they need to do. So I really think this is just super important. Again, we can have politicians say we, we know what to do to keep these schools safe. Testing, masks, vaccines. But the truth of the matter is very few schools in, those, in this country have full imp like implementation programs implementing all three of those things. Well, and airflow, too. My God, air filtration, airflow is so important, and it's been so seldom talked about in this whole process. Totally. I mean, technically, they were supposed to, schools were incentivized to use some of the COVID relief money for that, but I don't know a lot of schools that did do that. A lot of times, it was just trying to recruit and retain staff. So it's just really frustrating because, like, we have the science, but it's not necessarily, like politicians are using the science to convince staff and educators that schools can stay safe for them. I just feel like the coverage completely misses the mark on this, where, you know, you have teachers who are demonized, parents who are frustrated and just want, you know, something reliable for their children. And no one's really talking about like the reality of schools right now. Like the reality of the last two years, which have been trash, but then also like <laughs> just keeping like the, the day to day. There's an amazing Reddit right now around schools in New York and kids are putting in like what their day is like. And so many times they're getting sent to an auditorium for study hall because there's no subs to fill in the missing teachers. And so they're in a room with four times as many kids that a normal classroom would have. Like, yeah. And what's the quality of instruction there? It's not. It's just a giant daycare and a big auditorium. For 15 and 16-year-olds, right. right? And so, you know, I say this all not to say, like, we should be closing schools. And I don't think anyone is saying we should be closing schools for the rest of the year. It's like, what do we do right now in this acute moment? And I just feel like the coverage does not acknowledge the reality in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where do we get these insights into that in these questions? Right. And, like... These statements by, you know, these are all from New York City Mayor Eric Adams, but you could say the same thing for Lori Lightfoot in Chicago and the mayor of San Francisco, who have also gotten blowback. But like, I, I just don't see anyone saying like kind of how Margaret Brennan did last week. The truancy rate was this. The staff, you know, absentee rate was blank. This is like, how does this work? How long is this feasible to do this? A week? Two weeks? Like... It's it just they're staying open because parents need schools to be open and kids want to be in school. But then there's like the actual quality of the instruction and the quality of the day. And that reality is just completely missing. What would you say should be being done? Well, I think more diverse voices, right? Like if in we, the coverage in the coverage itself, like 
is is it impossible to talk to like an organization that supports parents? Is it impossible to talk to like the PTA president of New York City or, you know, is it impossible to talk to staff? Is it impossible to talk to really well-organized students? Students know how to speak up for themselves. Like, they do it all the time. We see it around gun violence all the time. But we, no one gives a crap about hearing from them directly and giving them a microphone. It's just completely unnecessary. And to be clear, this is the mayor. It's not even like the chancellor who actually runs the schools. It's so, you know, 1,000 feet kind of viewpoint that I think it's impossible to have nuance. Well, I think we we definitely see some nuance in Margaret Brennan's answers here. But I it occurs to me that in this last clip that we played, Margaret Brennan is essentially saying she basically invalidates his answer. And he says, okay, but... That We're doesn't change anything. my answer, right? Like, it doesn't change it. And I feel like the only reason, potentially, that she had that nuance is that she has kids under the age of four. She has two kids. Right. Again, I, I think, like, you could have changed the clips and my comments would have been exactly the same 18 months ago. Or, you know, at the start of the 2020-2021 school year. It's just mind-blowing that this is literally two years in. And these news organizations are so uncreative in trying to talk about this story. Aren't you bored? Like, aren't you bored? Like, don't you want to tell a better story? Right. I'm bored. And my kid isn't even in the schools. Yeah. So that was... So overall, what would be your grade here? Are you saying Margaret Brennan did a boring job no i think margaret brennan margaret brennan did a better job than jake tapper okay like jake tapper brought two hard questions but there wasn't a lot of like meat to them i thought that margaret brennan was ready to engage in a lengthier conversation than i think eric adams wanted to or was ready to and and to push back yeah yeah i think i think a lot of this too is he is new so he's kind of doesn't really have the long-term answers yet the long-term answer on whether they're elongating the school year, right? Like, that hasn't been determined yet, and that's understandable. He was assumed to be mayor since he won the primary, which was many, many months ago. Like, it's it's not... Uh, but it's understandable that that decision hasn't been made yet. I think that's the trap. No, I disagree. No. He has lots of answers for what he's going to do in law enforcement. Lots of answers of what he's going to do for... Well, he has an answer. He just doesn't have a... It hasn't been determined in terms of the school year being elongated. Right, but I'm saying he has very in-depth answers for other topics that he's been asked about, including things that he's going to do around crime around the city. But he he's saying like they're going to figure it out in schools. Right. Nah, I don't I don't buy it. I had a couple other things, but I think I've been ranty enough. Brendan, what are you going to talk about that you noticed on your shows? Yeah, so I wanted to zoom in on a very interesting situation that I saw on Fox News Sunday, where Brett Bear our host this week, was interviewing CDC director Rochelle Walensky. We've seen Walensky on a few times. We've seen Brett Baer host now a few times on Fox News Sunday. It's very strange. It's very interesting to talk about because CDC director Walensky has a lot to answer for right now. The CDC has, in my estimation, done a really bad job throughout this pandemic in lots of different ways. Some things they've gotten right, some things they've gotten wrong. But overall... There's been a lot more wrong than I think anyone would have liked, and it shows. And obviously, it's not just the CDC. The FDA is to blame for a lot of things, as is, you know, the administration in charge. The Trump administration in the beginning, the Biden administration now. That said, there is a lot that falls on CDC Director Walensky's shoulders. She's come under a lot of legitimate critical fire recently for decisions that have been made and changed and made again and changed again. And this interview is... Fascinating because Brett Baer asks super important critical questions of this public health leader. We, Naomi, you and I on Polylog have been begging for more critical questions to our public health leaders throughout this crisis, for critical questions on their decision making, their assessments, their goals, all of that. Critical questions, not just treating them as subject matter experts, as Fauci often is, but as true leaders who need to be held responsible for their decisions. 
because they have political power. Brett Baer did that today, and it was great that he asked critical questions. Love it. However, all of his critical questions, all of them, every single one, and there were many, including many follow-ups, were in a single direction from a single political agenda perspective. They were all towards the perspective of, is Omicron so bad? Are these restrictions so necessary? Are kids really in danger? Are these, you know, all of that. It's all from the perspective of someone who is feeling like there's just too many restrictions. This COVID thing is still being overblown, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, some of the questions, very important, right? In fact, a lot of them were very important, but they were all from one side of the agenda. And that is very disappointing because it means, A, you miss a lot of other critical questions, and B, you come off looking like you have bias, which you clearly do, which is dumb. So don't do it like that. (laughs) But anyway, we have to praise him for some of these critical questions that need to be asked. And so I have three sections that I'm going to divide this conversation into. The first one, we're going to look at critical questions that need to be asked and were asked and were done well. Then I'm going to have some examples of truly agenda-driven exchanges. Again, some of them legitimate, but they were all in one direction. And one question that didn't even go far enough, believe it or not. So first, critical questions that need to be asked that we haven't seen asked enough. Here's one such question to CDC Director Walensky. Speaking of statistics, uh, it seems to make a big difference if a person in the hospital is in the hospital for COVID-19 or with COVID-19. It's been almost a year since you've been running the agency. Do we have that split on numbers? Um, You know, what I will say is it differs by each variant. So um, some variants, first of all, we're doing screening of many, uh, um, in many hospitals of everybody who's walking in the door. Um, What we're seeing with the Omicron variant is that um, it tends to be milder person by person, but given how large the numbers are that we're seeing more and more cases come into the hospital. In some hospitals that we've talked to, up to 40% of the patients who are coming in with COVID are coming in not because they're sick with COVID, but because they're coming in with something else and have uh, had uh, COVID or the Omicron variant detected. What is an extremely, extremely important question. We were just talking, I can't say last week, we were talking two weeks ago about the shift in conversation from looking at metrics related to the number of cases of the coronavirus, of COVID-19, versus the number of hospitalizations and deaths. And since Omicron is less severe, the conversation probably needs to and should have a while ago now shifted to discussions of hospitalizations and deaths rather than cases. Because, because of course, even before Omicron, cases could have been breakthrough cases of people who are already vaccinated And therefore, those cases were more likely to be mild, not lead to hospitalizations, not strain the healthcare system, and even be less likely to be spread because they were from people who are vaccinated. So it's important to be talking about hospitalizations as our metric and not cases. But if we're talking about hospitalizations, we better damn well know whether those are hospitalizations that are caused by COVID or not caused by COVID. Because if they're 40% of the people going in with COVID right now are not going in because of COVID, then that means that they would have gone in anyway, and that COVID is not responsible for that strain on the healthcare system. That strain would have already been there. So we need to know that. That's really, really important. And it should be obvious. It should be asked more. The data should be crystal clear. We should all know for a fact that when we talk about COVID hospitalizations, we are only talking about the numbers that are there because of COVID-19. These other ones, the 40% should have already been taken out of the conversation because they're not relevant to the conversation. They are not relevant. They're relevant to the hospital. The hospital has to make sure that they're following the proper procedures so that they don't infect other people or hurt their staff. But they're not relevant to the conversation about COVID strain on the healthcare system. But how many times have we seen this question, Naomi, on the Sunday shows? Now, I, since we've been doing this, I've only been listening to half of them. So I can say, honestly, that I haven't heard it in my half. Have you heard that question before? I don't think so. But I don't know. 
we've been covering COVID for two years, so I yes. can't be I, totally. But it sure. hasn't been asked enough, clearly. Right. And it's it, it should be. This is a critical question, and good for Bear for asking it. And why does it take someone from that kind of like skeptical side to ask it? Why isn't Chuck Todd and Jake Tapper and Martha Raddatz asking this question? It should be asked. It should be clear. So that was excellent. Glad he asked it. And I hope more people bring that to the surface. Here's another one that was also really important, an important clarification. By the way, I should say at the start of this question, he's referencing Supreme Court arguments because the Supreme Court is looking at whether they should pause the Biden administration's mandates for COVID vaccination. And Brett Baer was doing a little bit of fact-checking of some of, the, of some of the Supreme Court justices. But, you know, the questioning in the Supreme Court also said that Omicron was as deadly as Delta. That is not true, right? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Omicron is not as deadly as Delta, at least by your data right now, right? We are starting to see data from other countries that indicate um, on a person-by-person basis it may not be. However, given the volume of cases that we're seeing with Omicron, we very well may see death rates rise uh, dramatically. So I wanted to highlight this because this is actually a really excellent example of how a word that seems like it's clear can be interpreted in two totally different ways, depending on who's listening to it or who's saying it. The word is, in this instance, deadly, right? He says, Omicron is not as deadly as Delta. Seems like a clear question, right? We know from the data as it exists now that if you get Omicron, you are less likely to die from Omicron than if you got Delta. That seems crystal crystal clear, right? Then, therefore, Omicron is not as deadly as Delta. But Walensky is not talking about an individual getting Omicron. She's talking about not an individual's health. She's talking about public health. And from a public health perspective, when you say, is one thing more deadly than the other, you're looking at, well, which leads to more deaths than the other. Since there are more cases of Omicron, there very well could be more deaths from Omicron, even if on the individual level, it's not as deadly. Some other people have pointed this out and indicated that overall, Omicron could end up leading to death rates as high as Delta. That has not been the case so far, although we're still in the middle of this Omicron surge. But it is really important for journalists, for the audience, for anybody to realize the difference between public health and individual health. And that is so hard for us to get our hands wrapped around because for the last 50 years, America has been obsessed with individual health and not public health. We know historically that we have not invested in our public health infrastructure, and we certainly haven't been talking from a public health perspective on much of anything. It's all about individual health. Even when we talk about things and have talked about things like the Affordable Care Act, think about Obama talking about, oh, you can keep your your health plan. You can keep your doctor. This is about you, the individual. Now, of course, he was not right about that. That ended up not being true. But that was what the conversation was framed as, right? Individual health, individual health decisions. You as the individual health consumer, that's what we've all been talking about. So everyone thinks from an individual perspective, but these are public health leaders and these are public health decisions being made by politicians. And so they're going to be using the word deadly differently than we are. Yeah. And I think even just kind of underscoring in the answer, like on an individual basis, not as likely to be deadly, but from a public health, from a system wide basis could lead to many deaths. It's really hard to wrap our head around, but it's also the language that has been used both by journalists and public health professionals alike has not made that clear. Yeah. And we want our and that's an important conversation, too. Right. Do we as voters as citizens, as people in this country, do we want our leaders to be making decisions based on public health or based on individual health? Some voters might want one. Some voters might want the other. That's where you go from, you know, people who are all for vaccine mandates and some who are totally against vaccine mandates and thinks think that it is an individual's choice. This gets right to, you know, the divide, a, a very common divide in this country. And we can't assume that every voter wants the same thing. But we should at least be clear 
about the conversation we're having. So good for Walensky for clarifying. I don't know if Bear truly acknowledges it. If, you know, it's, it's interesting. I feel like there are instances where scientists, for example, from the climate community, pushed back and pushed back and pushed back on journalists to say, please, please, please be better about talking about the science of climate. I think there needs to be something very similar about talking about the science of this public health crisis. And at the top of that list should be, please help your audience understand and use these words more carefully, the difference between public and individual health. My two favorite public health professionals who are amazing at this are Jessica Malati Rivera, who was with the COVID Tracking Project and also does all great like science communications work, and Laurel Bristol, who does COVID research at Emory Hospital. Both of them have like extremely prolific and active Instagrams where they're explaining things and also calling out like trash headlines that explain the science really poorly. So those are my top ladies who are doing this work of making it accessible for people. That's excellent. Yeah. There really should be like a top 10 things like double check before you ask the, ask your question that you're not framing it wrong. Like a guide for these journalists. That would be that would be great. Yeah. And I will say Jessica Malati Rivera does get interviewed on CNN, on NPR. Haven't seen her on the Sunday shows ever. Maybe they should book her. But she she does a lot of kind of like mainstream press. Her work is so important. I, I wish she was everywhere. Of course, we will have that in the show notes. So you can go ahead and take a look at your podcast player now or when you can. And you should see that in the show notes section. Okay, I want to highlight one more question that I thought was in this category of just really important critical questions to CDC Director Walensky from Brett Baer. As recently as this past week, President Biden called this a pandemic of the unvaccinated. According to your CDC data, the Omicron variant accounts for 95.4% of cases. Delta is 4.6% of cases. Again, the vaccinated are getting this infection. They're transmitting it to others. Considering all of that and these percentages, how is it that pandemic of the unvaccinated is a terminology that should be used? You know, we do know that people who are vaccinated are still protected about 70% against infection, especially if they're boosted. Um, so the people who are ending up in the hospital, the people who are ending up very sick with Omicron are the ones who are unvaccinated. This is such an important question because that term pandemic of the unvaccinated started. We started to hear it from the Biden administration back in the summer. You know, around that time that Biden had his July 4th, you know, we're independent of the virus, you know, we're declaring our independence, you know, today we declare our independence day, right? That whole thing. Uh, But that's when we started hearing it. And there were people scratching their heads about it back then. And here we are now, where even more breakthrough cases are happening, you and me, Naomi, among them. And this sense of us being in a world with many people that we know who are vaccinated, who are boosted, who are getting the virus, even though they were taking all the precautions. And it's like, look, your data might say one thing, might say the other. Here's our lived reality. The vaccine didn't stop Omicron, period. It seemed like Omicron just cuts right through the vaccine, right through the booster. It just gets you. Now, less severe for us, hopefully way less severe for us (laughs) because we got the vaccine and went through all the trouble. But The reality is, it is not a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Our lives were extremely disrupted by this damn Omicron, this this COVID-19 that we got this week. And it's disrupting our air travel. It's disrupting our family experiences. It's not saying our as in just people who are vaccinated. It's disrupting kids in schools. It's disrupting activities you want to do. It's disrupting things on the store shelves. It's disrupting if you want to go out and buy a car right now and you drive by the car dealerships. You pointed this out to me this week, Naomi, as we drove by some car dealerships. There's these lots are mostly empty right now. This is not a pandemic of the unvaccinated. It is affecting vaccinated and unvaccinated people alike. Certainly more unvaccinated people end up dying, end up hospitalized. But that doesn't mean the vaccinated are unaffected, that the vaccinated do not live in a world of the pandemic. Like hell we don't. We are in this pandemic world. So this pandemic of the unvaccinated rhetoric was questionable in the summer and is ridiculous right now it is the stupidest thing i ever heard and good for bear for pointing it out 
and pushing back and asking about it because I think unvaccinated people find it offensive as they did in the summer. And now vaccinated people find it offensive even more so now. So retire that BS ASAP. Absolutely. I mean, between work conditions, school conditions, supply chain, like there's no one who's like not touched by the pandemic. And this is where the Biden administration deserves tons of criticism because even among their own very vaccinated Democratic voters, they have failed to end this pandemic. The pandemic has not ended. And certainly Omicron was coming. Maybe there was no stopping it, but you could have made it way better if you had dealt with this pandemic and mitigated some of these effects that we just named. Schools, testing, all sorts of disruptions. Okay, but I have to point out some of these agenda-driven exchanges where it's extremely clear what direction all of Bear's questions are coming from. And he gets a little argumentative. Okay, uh, back to the mandates for a second. People are losing their jobs. More than 220 Marines, sailors, um, airmen have been kicked out of the military uh, for refusing to get vaccinated. Healthy service members, uh, some of them have circulating antibodies in their blood from past infections, uh, but they're not the antibodies the government recognizes. Is that fair? Um, you know, I think the thing that's most disruptive to um, any business or industry is to have half their workforce out because they're sick with COVID. We have seen with the Omicron variant that um, prior protection protects you less well than it had with um, with the current uh, with than it had with prior variants. So having previous infection seems to not protect you as well as um, against Omicron. Um, right now, I think the most important thing to do is to protect Americans. We do that by getting them vaccinated and getting them boosted. Right, but will the CDC take natural immunity seriously to study its effect on the big picture? Uh, for example, why not include recovery from infection as the equivalent of at least one shot the way other countries do? Um, yeah, you know, we have taken this very seriously. Several uh, months ago, we provided a scientific brief with dozens of studies providing the updated science with this. Um, of course, that science is ever evolving, um, as has this uh, has as has this variant. And so, we need to um, update that science with regard to what we learn about Omicron, which so far has demonstrated that prior infection protects you less well. So, this is a very interesting discussion, but it's. It's very clear that Bear's interest is in one direction, right? He's he's standing up for people who have chosen not to get vaccinated. He's positing that some of them, not all of them, some of them have already gotten the coronavirus, and therefore those people, at least, should be waved through because they have antibodies, as someone might if they had gotten the vaccine. These kinds of questions are also kind of exhausting because you kind of have to hack your way through the bias and the agenda to see if there's anything worthwhile right. that you can kind of take away, yeah. right? Like it it puts a greater burden on your viewer if they're not like totally in your camp to see if it's worth listening, which is a shame because then I feel like more likely than not if they're not in your camp, they'll just check out. Yeah, and it just it goes really really deep into a question and Again, it's very interesting, but it's like how many people who refused the vaccine also have already gotten COVID? What percent of them have and therefore are saying, look, I will submit to a blood test to prove that I've already gotten COVID rather than get a shot. Like, I don't know a lot of people who would rather have blood taken than get a shot. That's actually a lot more, takes a lot more to get blood taken than it does to get a quick shot. It's a very odd way of like arguing it's almost like he's a lawyer for these people who have chosen not to get vaccinated and he's arguing their case and that's not to say that we shouldn't ask questions from all perspectives but he's going pretty deep into the argument here and only one argument here's another example where it's about children and the risk to children. Yeah. You, know, you just heard about the U.S. Supreme Court currently deciding the fate of the president's vaccine mandates. In the questioning, Justice Sonia Sotomayor made this statement. We have over 100,000 children, which we've never had before, in, in serious condition, and uh, many on ventilators. Now, 
numbers we can find from Friday suggest there are fewer than 3,500 current pediatric hospitalizations from COVID-19. Is that true? Yeah, but you know, here's what I can tell you about our pediatric hospitalizations now. First of all, the vast majority of children who are in the hospital are unvaccinated. And for those children who are not eligible for vaccination, we do know that they are most likely to get sick with COVID if their family members aren't vaccinated. So the most important thing we can do for those children to keep them out of the hospital is to vaccinate them and to vaccinate their family members around them. Understood, but the we number's not 100,000. It's roughly 3,500 in hospitals now. It, but the risk of death or serious illness in children is still very small, right? Comparatively, the risk of death um, is small, but of course, you know, children aren't supposed to die. So, yeah. you know, if we have a, a child who's been, who is sick with COVID-19, we want to make sure that um, they, uh, we want to protect them, of course. Right. But I'm talking from your data, ages 15 to 24, for example, the risk of death is at 0.001 percent. Um, I, I guess that what I'm getting at in this opening is that the, the Supreme Court is in the process of dealing with this big issue about mandates. And do you feel a responsibility as a CDC director to correct a very big mischaracterization by one of the Supreme Court justices? Yeah, I, um, here's what I'll tell you. I'll tell you that right now, 17, you're, if you're unvaccinated, you're 17 times more likely to be in the hospital and 20 times more likely to die than if you're on, than if you're boosted. So there's so many different ways to interpret this exchange. I feel like we could spend a whole episode talking about it. On the one side, there could be a knee-jerk reaction of Brett Baer is trying to minimize children in the hospital with COVID and the risk of death to children. And that is very disturbing. But at the same time, Sonia Sotomayor, the U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice, is maximizing and, and literally misstating the facts by an order of what? You know, overstating it by 28 times what it actually is, which is a real problem, right? We don't want our Supreme Court to make decisions based on data that is 2,800% wrong, right? And that's that's what it is. 2,800% wrong is what she was. So that's a concern. As a counterpoint, Gorsuch also said that hundreds of thousands of people die from flu each year. Which is not true. Which is not true. Right. I'm saying all these... Yeah. Big, there's lots of infections of the flu, but I think it's like somewhere between ten and 20,000 people die from the flu every right. year. So that's another important point, right? This is an important thing to correct. The Supreme Court deserves a lot of scrutiny, demands a lot of scrutiny, and rarely gets scrutiny. So I love to see scrutiny of the Supreme Court. But Walensky is also making an important point, and it's that children are not supposed to die. I've heard this from public health experts, and it's something that it takes a while to really understand what that means. But what it means is, like, there's an inherent risk to the elderly just in living, because as people get older, their risk of death increases from a whole host of causes. That's why in some cases, when it comes to prostate cancer, if someone gets prostate cancer over the age of 75, or I think 80, the U.S. Preventative Task Force, a government task force, their recommendation is like, don't treat it because they assume that people of that age, they will not die of prostate cancer. They will die of something else. And so why even treat it, right? There's this like assumption that as people get older, you don't have to treat some of these issues because something else will get them first. That's not the case for children. Children, as she says, are not supposed to die. And even if you have a very, very low percent of risk caused by something, a risk of death in children is astronomically troubling because they are not supposed to die. And small numbers can mean big things in a big country or in, in big situations. And we just had an example of that when it comes to Eric Adams, right? In New York City, right now, in the last week, three out of 10 kids were out sick. And you think, okay, well, if my kid is in a class of 10 kids and there are three kids out sick, all right, fine, big deal, right? What does it matter? Well, but in New York City, that means 300,000 kids are now at home. 300,000 is a hell of a lot. Holy God, that's a lot of kids. In a country of 300 million, 
that's even more, right? And so 0.001% or whatever the number was, I guess we should be clear about this, point, yeah, I think it is, 0.001% here, the risk of death in kids, is a, is a lot of kids. And it should be something that we're fighting against, especially when we know that we have the means to do so. And that's what this is all about. So that's a lot to say. That's not all I have to say about that clip, but we will move on. The main point is, all these questions are from one perspective. If you don't get that yet, I'm not going to say it again. Finally, here's one question where Brett Baer didn't even go far enough in my estimation in his level of criticality of this question. Before you took this job officially, you emphasized that one of your primary goals was to restore public trust. But in this time, do you think that it's fair to say that the the trust and confidence of the public has gone down with the CDC? Um, Thank you, Brett. You know, this is hard. We have ever-evolving science with an ever-evolving variant, um, and my job is to provide updated guidance in the context of rapidly rising cases. And that is what we've done, and I'm here to explain it to the American people, and I'm committed to continuing to do so and to continuing to improve. And we appreciate you coming on. We really do. Uh, Just getting facts out there. So Brett Baer reminds Rochelle Walensky that she was committed to restoring public trust in the CDC and asks her if it's fair to say that trust and confidence has gone down. I think that's a little, it's a little soft, his actual question. Of course it's gone down. I think it's gone way down since she's been the CDC director. I think this has been a really rough patch for the CDC, and it's largely of the CDC's doing. I think the CDC has made tons of really, really bad choices when it comes to public communication of their messages and scientific communication of their messages. Releasing guidance without backing that up with facts and data does not instill trust for anybody. And that's what they have been doing. And they have not been explaining why they have made decisions. If your goal has, one of your primary goals is restoring public trust, and this is what you're doing a year into the job, I think it's pretty clear that that goal you have not met. What I would have liked to have seen in a question like this is a reference to a few of the suggested reforms of the CDC and the FDA that were suggested by people like Gottlieb, like this group of uh, former advisors to President Biden's transition, and by many others saying, here's how these public health agencies need to change systematically to do a better job at restoring public trust and handling these sorts of crises. It would have been great to reference some of those and to ask Walensky, like, are you for these changes? And if you are, what are you doing to make those changes happen? Because we're sitting here with this virus, it's still happening, we're still in a pandemic, and we're still making what seem like very basic mistakes. I think there's very basic mistakes, and then there's the, like, generous people don't understand your messaging or reasoning you could do a whole line of like questioning of trying to understand the reasoning and the science of what the cdc is attempting to do now and bears kind of doing neither really yeah there's value in both both sides of that i guess is what i'm trying to say and we're just not, not seeing it absolutely and there are some creative ways that the shows could do this, right? Call in, uh, you know, someone to run a focus group and say, we're going to put some public health messages on the board that you guys, the CDC, have put out there. We're going to ask this room full of people what they think of it, how they interpret it, how they plan to to do something about it. And then we're going to confront you with those answers and ask you what you think about it. I would love to see things like that. Uh, me too. <laughs> it's beyond you. Absolutely. And you don't even have to tell them you're going to do it. You can just say, look, we just did this thing. Here, I'm going to play a clip for you. Now, please respond. Right? Like, you don't have to tell them you're going to do this. Preparation. It would be greatly appreciated. All right, Naomi. Well, we are done not only preparing, but speaking here. So for our dialogue challenge, why don't we just challenge everyone to create their own focus group and report back what the focus group says? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think what we could do is we could ask people to have a dialogue with people around them about what the CDC guidelines state right now. It'd be interesting just to ask people around you, like, are you aware of the current guidelines? Do you know what to do? Have you looked it up before? Because it is changing. And when we got COVID, we had to double check. What are the guidelines now exactly? 
How are they different for people who are vaccinated versus people who are unvaccinated versus people who are boosted? Just take stock around, you know, for those around you. And it might be an insightful conversation. Yeah, just trying to keep up with the updates is a full-time job. At least a part-time job. I don't have time for a part-time job. Yeah, and there's both the guidelines and then there's what people like Gottlieb or other public health experts or people you see on TV, how they interpret it, you know? You want to share any insights from your pseudo focus group? You are welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Soto Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at Beastidle and you can tweet at the show at Polylogcast. Thanks everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Hope you are staying healthy, staying safe and staying as positive as you can in this never ending pandemic. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.